Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello sports fans and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host Dana Augusta and I'm grateful each and every one of you taking time out of your busy day to give us a listen. And just a reminder not to forget to subscribe to this show wherever you hear us or whatever platform you may check us out on. Please don't forget to subscribe. On this week's show, we're going to be talking to the host of Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast, Scott Kinville, as we discuss the great Gordie Howe and his time with the World Hockey Association's Houston Arrows. In the early 1970s, Howe, who was known universally as Mr. Hockey, was a member of four Stanley Cup winning teams in Detroit and had just retired after 26 seasons. He prolonged his career when he signed with the Houston Arrows of the newly formed World Hockey Association, which gave him the opportunity to play with his sons, Mark and Marty Howe, something that NBA star LeBron James said that he wants to do before his career ends. Also, we have the Home Field Apparel Top 5 historical events that took place between the dates of September 25th and October the 1st. It includes one of the great urban legends in baseball history, and Babe Ruth was in the middle of it. And also one of the greatest showdowns in the history of Olympic track, which became overshadowed with controversy. And one of the greatest final chapters of a boxing robbery, which brought both fighters to the brink of death. And finally, in the last segment, we give a shout out, we call our shout out. We'll send a shout out to a sports arena located on Long Island, which opened its doors 50 years ago this week. It became the home of one of the greatest dynasties in sports history, a small arena whose fans refer to as Fort Never Lose. So sit back and pump up the volume because you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today! 
soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of FilmMusic.io. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen, and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm yours truly, Dana Augusta, and tonight coming in, we have a very special guest coming in, and um, Sports Illustrated recently put out a cover of um, LeBron James, NBA superstar LeBron James, and he had made no secret that he wants to play long enough to have the opportunity to play with his sons, Bronny and Bryce James. Now, we've seen this act before. Uh, most recently in baseball, when you saw King Griffey and King Griffey Jr. play together with the Mariners in the early 90s. In fact, both of them hit back-to-back home runs against the Angels. I can't remember the, I want to say it like 1991 or 1992, somewhere in that area. But also, there was this, this has also happened in the sport of hockey. And we had an iconic player, one of the most famous hockey players of all time, play long enough to play with his sons. And to talk about that is one of my, this, this guy is a true hockey historian, Mr. Scott Kenville. Scott, glad to have you on board, man. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is a, a real treat. I got to tell you, anytime I get to come out and flap my gums about hockey, I'm a happy guy. And right I got to tell you, my man, you made me a very happy guy. <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for, man. And um, Gordy Howe, let's talk about him for a second. I mean, who anybody that is a hockey fan, even if it's deep like into you or like yours truly, who's kind of new to the, to, to the sport or at least to the historical part of the sport, Gordy Howe, everybody knows. And he's an iconic figure of this of the sport you know talk about him a little bit before we get it really get into the details of this sure so Gordie Howe of course is obviously like you said one of the most famous hockey players to ever lived uh, also considered one of the greatest hockey players to ever live uh and you know what for everybody he was on the Simpsons I mean that you know when you made it You're, you were on the Simpsons you know you, you're in right <laughs> but, <laughs> but Gordie Howe played uh 26 seasons actually which is phenomenal uh, for, given the, and that's just NHL. That's not counting as WHA time. So he broke into the league in 1946. Wow. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it was just incredible. And he actually didn't really want to retire, but it was, it was one of those situations where he was, I don't want to say he was forced out, but it was kind of a, you know, a parting of the ways, shall we say. So in the seventies, the uh, world hockey association emerged as a, as a challenge league to the NHL. Um, much like there was, there was a lot of that going on in the seventies, right? So the NBA had the ABA, uh, which everybody remembers the, uh, the, the red, white, and blue balls. And yep, uh, of course, you know, yes. the, the New York Nets and all that, you know, Dr. Right. J was awesome. Right. And then of course, in the NFL, you had the WFL, the world football league. Yep. So that was WHA was hockey's version of that. And the WHA actually put out, it was a great league in the regards that it gave a lot of players a chance to play that obviously would not have had a chance to play. Um, the NHL was not the 32 team league that we know as it now. Um, it was back then it was, they were just expanding to like 14 leagues or 14 teams. I'm sorry. When the, the WHA came on the scene. So, and back then too, just as a, a little bit more background, Europeans were not a big part of the NHL then. it was mostly a North American league, primarily Canadian. So when the WHA emerged is when they gave a lot of European players a chance to play. Uh, players that were, I don't, you know, 
about to retire from the NHL, maybe couldn't get a chance because, again, you didn't have as many teams in the NHL, so there weren't as many spots available. So the WHA prolonged a lot of careers, including one Mr. Gordy Howe. Uh, so he came to the Houston Arrows in 1973, um, and with him came his two sons, Murray and Mark. So, or I'm sorry, Marty and Mark. So <laughs> Murray's a doctor, by the way. Murray's an, another one of his sons is a doctor. That's how I kind of, anyways. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know. I didn't know he had a third son. He did. Yeah, I didn't he know did. that. Yeah, he's a, he's actually he's a doctor. Uh, quite famous, actually. Um, but anyways, so he came to the uh, Houston Arrows in 1973. And uh, they played together for four years. They won two straight championships. Uh, and then, by the way, they didn't play for the Stanley Cup, of course, in the World Hockey Association. It was the Avco Cup, yeah. which was named for a company that had sponsored it. It was, you know, obviously sponsorship rights kind of thing. But uh, they won in 74 and 75. So they played together in Houston from 73 to 1977. And then they reunited in the, uh, will be the, the, New, the New England Whalers, who became, of course, the Hartford Go for Hartford Whalers, right. Right. Coolest logo. The one I've, I've always said, they had the coolest logo, one of the coolest logos ever in sports. I, I, oh, yeah. No doubt. One of the coolest logos ever with the whale tail and the W at the bottom. And, and it forms the H in between the two. Yeah. The two and that's, and I, you know, as a kid growing up in Louisiana, like I did, we didn't get a lot of exposure to hockey, obviously. But I tell you what. When you saw the the Hartford Whalers jersey, you know, you knew that was you knew that was that was like, oh, I like that. That's 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 really cool, you know. Um, and you said that the the uh, hockey wasn't really didn't have a lot of European players, right. um, which to me was like, ah, that, that that's kind of odd. But you know, but at the same time, it was mainly Canadian. It was mainly a Canadian slash U.S. But more Canadians played in it than Americans. Far away. Yep. Um, and then up until like what 1967, they only had like six teams in the league, which was the original six. They did, and, and they doubled the size of the league. Correct. Okay, in with 67 with, with teams like the Flyers and the California Seals, I remember. Yep. Uh, LA the Penguins, the LA Kings, um, the Minnesota North Stars. Minnesota North Stars, another cool jersey. I was just going to say that. <laughs> you read another my cool mind. jersey, by the way. <laughs> you know, but, you know, you, you had Gordy Howell, okay? He was, like you said, he played, started in 1946. He played for Detroit till 1971, mm-hmm. okay? And people can see, do you consider him, a lot of people said that he was probably the most complete player in NHL history. He was. Do you agree that, with that assessment? I totally agree. Um at that time, Gordy was also one of the bigger players in the league, too. Um, you got to remember, at this time, when he was playing, athletes weren't as, as huge as they are now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Gordy was massive. I mean, he was almost 200 pounds, which was almost unheard of in hockey at that particular point. And the man was – they had, they had pictures of him with his shirt off, and he just he looked like he was chiseled out of stone. It was incredible, right? And this is back in an era where the, you know athletes weren't working out 365 days a year, right? Right. So once the offseason hit, a lot of them were working part-time jobs because they wanted to supplement their income and all that. But Gordy was just – let's just put it this way. He was an animal. I mean, he was huge. And you know what? He was one of those guys you did not mess with Gordy Howe because it was also a rougher game back then. Oh, right? yeah. There was, there was no concussion awareness. There was hardly any pads being worn. No I mean, helmets, by the way, no hockey helmets at all. Either. For the most part. And actually, and you know what? You want to hear an interesting story about Gordy as far as that goes. 
So in a playoff game in 1950 against the Toronto Maple Leafs, he got it was an accidental check. He, uh, Ted Kennedy from the Maple Leafs mm-hmm. checked him. He didn't mean to knock Gordy headfirst into the boards, but he did. Right? Mm-hmm. Gordy gets stretchered off the ice. He's got a brain hemorrhage. Wow. Yeah, had to have had to have his skull drained basically because they had to cut a hole through his skull, drain the blood out of the out of his skull. Wow. Yeah, and uh, guess what? Gordy came back by the end of the series. By the end of the series. Yeah. So. <laughs> so. Yeah, wow. You know. How do you see? I mean, that, I guess, that's the guys, thing. I mean, the, I mean, you got players from back then. I've heard stories. You know. You know, like NFL stories. Like, for example. Uh, I, you talk about how, I mean, um, concrete Chuck Bagneric played for the Eagles, who was a linebacker slash center, the last of the 60-minute men, they called him. Right. And in one game, I think it was against the Steelers or against the Giants or somebody, he tore his bicep, <clears throat> excuse me, he tore his bicep lengthways, okay? So they both, both sides of the bicep was on each side of the bone, okay? Yep. Just thinking about it is, it gives me chill. Yeah, right. So he goes to the sideline. He tells the equipment man, "Tape it right here, in you know, right in the middle." He, in, in the meantime, he pushes the two sides, the two pieces of the muscle together, where it's supposed to be. Tapes it up, goes back in, and finishes playing the game. See, that's just a. They, they, back then, they just seemed to be have been made differently. You know, they were. You know, they, they were. You know, a, a guy getting checked into the boards getting a brain hemorrhage drains his skull and then goes back out there and plays. That's just, that's, that's next level. That's, well, you know what? Here's that's just the next thing. level to me. <laughs> See with the, with the athletes back then too, there was a lot of concern that somebody else was going to take their spot because there were right, so few exactly spots available. Right. right? Yeah. So, so and, but back then to them, I got to do everything I can to get back, you know, back to this game, back to this team as soon as possible, because if somebody takes my place, there, in hockey, there was only six teams. So w- where are you going to go, right? Uh-huh. No, nowhere. So even as, as talented as Gordy was, another thing about Gordy, too, he was ambidextrous. So he had a straight blade stick because he could shoot both left-handed and right-handed. Right. Wow, that's cool. So, yeah, it, <laughs> it, would be, it would be like a, a relief pitcher or any kind of pitcher in baseball being able to pitch with both hands. Yeah, or, or, or like a basketball it. player who could you could basically shoot either direction, you know, right, right-handed or left-handed, and be equal in, in either way, which is it's almost unfair, you yeah. know. And, and, and with him, he was already good. Yeah, but with him doing that, that that just made it almost impossible. So exactly. So I mean, he he played until seventy-one, and just go over his career stats, which is astounding. Okay, first of all. He played 26 seasons just in the NHL, not right. with the WHA and not, you know, that's just NHL, 26 years. That's impressive. You know, George Blanda played 26 years in the NFL. Nolan Ryan pitched in the majors for 26 years. So maybe Tom Brady's going to get there. I hope not, but maybe he will. <laughs> um, hey, I got him going in fantasy tonight, so I hope he does good tonight. That's, <laughs> I really need that right now. <laughs> I don't care if he wins. I just need him to do good in fantasy. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, when so he retired, with, when he retired with the with the with the Red Wings, he had eight hundred and one goals and one thousand forty nine assists, which totaled up to eighteen hundred and fifty total points. 
all of those were records until some guy named Wayne Gretzky came along. Yep. 23-time All-Star. 23 times he was an All-Star. Six-time Art Ross Trophy. If you don't know what the Art Ross Trophy is, it was the points leader. Yep. Also, he was the Hart Trophy winner six times, which is the league's MVP, and four-time Stanley Cup champion with the Red Wings. He played his entire NHL career in Detroit, and his total career spanning from the beginning, 1946, his career finally ended with, the, as you said, the Harvard Whalers in 1980. The dude played in five different decades. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's incredible, too, right? He was, he was 51 when he finally hung him up. So 51 years old, playing hockey. That's, now, didn't, that's he come back, didn't he come back? I remember reading somewhere that he came back like in the 90s yes. to play a shift. It was it was, oh, a, it was a publicity uh, stunt more than anything else. So okay. he played in a, for a team called the Detroit Vipers, which okay, which I've was heard, I which heard was in them. the in the International Hockey League, which is now defunct. Uh, the IHL was actually the equivalent of the AHL, the American Hockey League. Okay. Think of it as like Triple A, okay, for hockey, right. right? So he only played one shift in that. I mean, he was past sixty years old at that point, and I honestly I don't think anybody was still messed with him. To be perfectly honest with you. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. He played one shift for the Detroit Vipers, and I, I want to say it was 1991 or 92. I, I, I got to look at it. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but you're right. It was in the 90s. And it's funny that you mentioned Wayne Gretzky because Gretzky growing up idolized Gordie Howe. Really? Absolutely idolized. Wanted to be like Gordie, as did a lot of kids back then, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that he is wearing wore number 99, he always wore number nine. Right. Only through his career, Gretzky did. Yeah. Right. In honor of Gordie Howe. When he got to the Sioux Greyhounds of the OHL, which is junior hockey, there was another guy that had nine already, and he was like basically heartbroken over it. So he was going to take 19 and not like in the sad book. So his coach recommended, well, why don't you wear two nines and really honor Gordie, make it 99. And that's how Wayne Gretzky came to wear number 99. Just as wow. a little, little side side story for you there. Not not not, not seem like okay. Now, now correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Rocket Rashard wear number nine? He did. He you did. Know, so nine is something of a special number in hockey, wouldn't you say? With the Rocket wearing that, um, um, Gordy Howe wearing number nine, especially um, that era. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's like uh, it's like the number like the number twelve in football. And right, you're a quarterback, and you were you were number twelve. That that, that meant sure. that you're you're pretty pretty good. Oh you yeah, know? it's a very Absolutely. sacred number in, in football. It seems like number nine is the same way in hockey. Now going to 1972, mm-hmm. Gordy Howe is retired. Okay, so he gets to Houston. To play the arrows. How did that come about? How did he become, how did he go from retirement to playing with his sons with the Houston arrows? So it's like I was saying, when he retired, he didn't really, he he thought he had a little bit left. And so his sons were about to break into pro hockey. And there was just a a fantastic opportunity. And and Houston ownership and management saw it, right? So they, they had both of his sons and they're like, you know, how, what better publicity could you possibly get than having the greatest hockey player of all time on your team in an upstart league, you know? So it was basically an appeal to Gordy saying, well, if you still got some left, let's see it, 
right? And so sure enough, here's Gordy in Houston playing with his sons. And boy, I tell you, Dana, he certainly did have enough left. There was there was no doubt about that. So again, like I said, they won two straight Abco Cups, which was the WHA's championship. And Gordy was basically out to prove everybody wrong. You know, it's got, the old man still got it. You know what I mean? Right. And, and you think about it, I, I think when I was looking back at this, I, I came to think that it probably was more of a publicity stunt because here it is, it's Houston in East Texas, which hot, which <laughs> football is huge. Right. You know, there's two seasons. There's football season and there's not football season. And you have an upstart hockey league in Houston, Texas. So you need to get people to the arena. Okay. So what did, so what would you, what are you going to do? Why not bring in the greatest hockey player at the time who still says that he has some left to play with his sons, which is also unprecedented. So I thought, you know, that had to have been a publicity stunt, you know, by them, but and ultimately it paid off because they won back to back league championships. So it obviously paid off in a big, big way. Sure. It did. And you know, not a lot of people may not know this, but his son, Mark, that he played with in Houston went on to also have a stellar NHL career. As a matter of fact, he's in the hall of fame right along with Gordy. That's now that either. I did. I did not know that. I did not know that either. You know, um, of course, everybody knew, but I never, like I said, my hockey is very limited. My hockey history is very limited, but talking there's the reason why I'm talking to you because I'm learning <laughs> stuff every, every time you say something, I'm, I'm learning something new. So, so keep on talking. I'm, I'm loving this, um, <laughs> but you got the Houston arrows. Now, when you talk about the WHA, who are some other teams that people kind of know about who are some other teams that were part of the WHA in the seventies. All right. So of course we just talked about the Hartford Whalers, right? Mm-hmm. When they were in the WHA, they were known as the new England Whalers. Right. And they had a little, they had an interesting history too, because they started off in Boston. Well, the Boston Bruins of the NHL did not want them in their market. Which, which makes sense because I heard right. that a lot. I heard that a lot. And that's what happened with a lot of these WHA teams, right? So there was very, very, the the NHL did not welcome them with open arms one bit. So uh, the New England Whalers ended up, they, (laughs) Boston Garden Management, right? Which was, the building was also owned by the same conglomerate that owned the Bruins, everybody. So they're like, well, yeah, we'll rent you our building, but you're getting the crappiest times that we've got. So in other words, your games are going to be like on Sunday nights at like 930 or, you know, whatever inconvenience we can have for you, we're going to do, right? So this happened, this played out in a lot of places all over the league. Um, a, a team we'll talk about a little bit later on, I don't want to give it away, the New York Raiders. We'll talk about okay. that too. All, all right. right. Uh, <laughs> so a couple like the, the Cleveland Crusaders are always one of my favorites, right? Because they, they had these, the, the white and purple uniforms, and they were just a very cool looking team. Um some of the other teams that were just, you know, they, they just couldn't basically get out of their own way, like the Philadelphia Blazers, right? They threw a ton of money at uh, superstars like Bernie Perrant and Derek Sanderson. And they just, they couldn't draw any because it was just, it was a horrible setup. And they ended up having to move after like one year, which is what happened to a lot of these WHA teams. Um, but one of the most successful ones, and that also got absorbed into the NHL, was the Winnipeg Jets. Okay, now, yeah. I had talked about the Winnipeg Jets, or I talked about the Winnipeg Jets because I had been talking about European players. Well, they gave 
European players a chance to play. Like Anders Nielsen was one of their stars. Okay. This guy was unbelievable. And they also signed another NHLer who felt that he, well, for lack of a better term, got the shaft in Bobby Hull. Okay. For, used to be the with Gold- the Chicago Blackhawks. Right. The Golden Jet. Right. Okay. So it, it was basically Hall wanted more money from the Blackhawks. At the time, the Blackhawks were notoriously cheap. And so they basically said to him, if you think you can get money in the WHA, go for it. Well, Winnipeg ownership said, well, we'll pay you a million dollars. Don't know how we're going to get this money, but we're going to pay it to you. Right. And Bobby Hall is like, if you're willing to put your name on that contract saying you're going to pay me a million dollars. All right, let's do this. So funny side story with that is the, the Jets owner basically had to go to the other owners in the WHA with his hat in his hand saying, <laughs> I need help to pay this guy. But listen, it's going to be great for the league to have him here. So we got the Golden Jet. Help me pay him now, right? So <laughs> that sounds a lot like the, the the Buffalo Bills Oakland Raiders thing when the Oakland Raiders were it was cash strapped after their first year, and, and Ralph Wilson decided to give them a four hundred thousand dollar loan, okay, to right. keep them going. So that's right. what it sounds like. Uh, you said Bernie Perron. Uh, one of the coolest signs I had ever seen. I watched this documentary on the Philadelphia Flyers, the Broad Street Bullies. And somebody, a fan had a sign that said, only God saves more than Bernie Perron. Yeah. So that was, I thought that was a cool sign. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> it's awesome, right? It's so awesome. So another one of those WHA teams, you might have heard of them. They started off as the Alberta Oilers. And they oh, became Edmonton. the Edmonton Oilers. So Another cool that, jersey. Another, another cool jersey. Another one. Exactly. So... Yeah, I mean, it's for, you know, as short-lived as the WHA was, it only lasted like eight years. But look what it gave us, right? It gave us the Edmonton Oilers. It gave, well, the Hartford Whalers are, you know, they're, they're not there anymore. They're now the Carolina Hurricanes. But it gave us the Winnipeg Jets. You know, right. it, I mean, that's, so, uh, the Quebec Nordiques, too. How do, how do we not talk about the Quebec Nordiques? One of, to me, one of the coolest teams of all time. I love that team. It pained me so much to see them move to Colorado. Just because I love those those light blue jerseys with those you know, blue fleur de lis on, yeah, like that, right? Awesome! It was so awesome. And I, I got to tell you, just another little bit of a side story here. I know I'm getting off track, and I do. That's fine. That. Hey, right. hey, I'm learning, bro. This is this is great. This to me, this is entertaining. <laughs> but I, well, I'm, I'm glad because, like I said, I, if, if I get too far off on a tangent, just tell me. But anyways, it's okay. Uh, with the Nordiques, I always felt bad for the fans in Quebec City, right? Because during their time in the NHL those fans suffered through some horrible hockey. There were years that team could not get out of its own way, but all that losing created a lot of high-end draft picks. And those draft picks started developing, developing the Joe Sackets of the world, right? Right. So they move. The Quebec Nordiques moved to Colorado after the 1995 season. Right. What happens the following year? They win the Stanley Cup. Yep. They win the Stanley Cup. I remember because that's like one of the first Stanley Cup. Again, I remind people, I'm from Louisiana. I'm a black dude. We don't, it, it wasn't high on the list as far as like watching television in during the summertime. But in, in the early nineties, the first hockey Stanley cup hockey finals, I remember watching, believe it or not, was in 94 with the Rangers and Vancouver Canucks. It was because it was the yeah. first time the, the Rangers would win the Stanley cup since 1940. And it was a big, big deal. And it, not to mention it was an, awesome series you know it, it was went seven it went seven games if i remember correctly but it yes, was it an did. awesome series 
And, um, you know, you had Stefan Mateau on that team. You had Mark Messier on the team. On the other side, you had Pavel Bure. You know, that was, that was some high-level elite hockey players at that time. And then the next year, you get this brand-new team, the Colorado Avalanche. I'm like, okay, who are these guys with the, with the blue and the A yeah. with, the little, with the avalanche and right, the hockey right. puck in the middle? I was like, bro, this is cool, you know? And I started watching them and, you know, and all of that. You know, but with the um, with the with the Howell brothers, Mark and Marty Howell, playing with their dad, how did they receive that overall in the beginning? So they learned a lot from them, right? Um, Mark was actually quoted as saying that you know you you think you know your dad, play hockey with him, right? Because, really? Yeah, it, it, because. It's a whole. It's sports are a different dynamic, right? So you have your your family life at home, and you have this idealistic life, right? But when you're playing sports, there are certain words that come out of your mouth that maybe you're not going to say around the dinner table, right? right? Certain sides of your personality, say temper wise, that you're not going to show at home, but you're going to show it out on the ice, right? So yeah. Mark said that he goes, yeah, he goes, if you really want to get to know a parent, play hockey with them. <laughs> <laughs> But they truly loved having being because it's it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Obviously, I mean, yeah. who could ever say that they're going to be able to play professional hockey with their dad, right? Right. So they absolutely loved it. They they really did, and uh, never a bad word spoken about it from either one of them. Obviously, of course not. And um, yeah, it was for them. Yeah, 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 their father might take him in back of the woods. Yeah, and crash him up against the boards. Pretty much, <laughs> and it's Gordy Howe. So, you know, no. I mean, your dad is Gordy Howe, and yeah, I mean, he's one of not only one of the greatest players, but also one of the toughest players in NHL history. Why would you test that? Why would you want to no. like say, "Nah, it was a horrible play"? No, are you are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> Dad, that pass was just a little off, but I'll let it go. That's okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he so he ends up playing with his sons in Houston. Now, do they play to get? And you may mention that he did go to the New England Whalers. Mm-hmm. Um, did they follow him, or did they stay in Houston? I'm talking eventually. About eventually. Oh, eventually. Okay, they did all end up together in in Hartford when they became the NH and went to the NHL. Uh, one season Gordy played in the NHL for Hartford. Uh, that was the 79-80 season. And uh, Mark and Marty were there, too. So they all played on the same line for the most part. And it was just like it was a, like a, a fairy tale ending, really. Uh, in that final season, the NHL, at, like I said, 51 years old, Gordy House scores 15 goals, which may not seem like a lot. But first, he's 51. I mean, exactly. So... He's you know, 51. I mean, <laughs> I'm 48, and then some days I'm, I'm like, oh, God, I got to get out of bed. I mean, this guy's playing in the NHL still. Right? Dude, I, I know what you're saying, dude. I'm 49. I'm the same way, brother. I mean, come on. <laughs> 51. I mean, he's 51 years old and still – first of all, I can't even play basketball. I used to play basketball all the time. I can't do that anymore. And I'm – I mean – my sons and my nephews will be outside playing ball and stuff like that. They ask me if I want to play. Nah, I don't know. I got to work yeah, right. tomorrow. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. he's in the exactly. NHL playing at the highest elite competition, and he's 51 years old, and he's, still, and he's still able to score 15 goals. And scoring a goal in the NHL is not easy. No, you know what I mean? Not at all. It's not easy. Not at all. You know, and he did 15. And, and, and that just gives you – 
another example of these dudes that played in this time period are just made differently, man. Exactly. Exactly. And it, and again, it's, it was a different time in a different place, of course. And that is, of course, that is in no way, you know, like a, a disparaging remark against athletes of today because athletes today are just incredible. Uh, what they do year round to take care of themselves and to, you know, put their best possible foot forward is just absolutely incredible. Again, different time, different place. We talked about it earlier, right? There was a lot of desperation in players back then. You know, the, there wasn't, a, you know, in, insofar as so much union protection, I guess you want to say, you know, guaranteed contracts were, there was, it, and when Gordy was first coming up through, the reserve clause was still in effect. You belonged to that team no matter what happened. That's right. You know, free agency was pretty much non-existent. So it was just, it was a different mindset, I think, more than anything else. And, you know, for better or for worse, you know, everything, you know, changed. There's a lot of things for the better, obviously, that changed, of course. Um, do we kind of miss the the old, old tough guy mentality sometimes? Maybe. But you know what? Again, different time, different place. And you, you talk about different time and different place. And the game back then, those days, even in the 70s and 80s, is completely different from what it is now. I mean, a lot of it has to do with safety, obviously. Sure. So, but the game strategically, have there been like a major evolution of the game from like the time that Gordy Howell played to like now? Yeah, there has been because what you don't see a lot anymore is with the enforcers. Okay. Right. You don't, you, you don't see the guy that's his purpose on the team is to fight. You don't see a lot of that anymore because uh, the game has changed. Right. So a lot of teams now think, well, if this guy, the only thing he can do is fight. Well, that's great. But in the meantime, the other guy that's across from him is going to skate by him and score two goals or, or whatever. Right. Um, that's not to say that there aren't guys out there that are still not tough and that aren't willing to drop the gloves. It's just, um, you know, you're not going to see that guy that's strictly out there to drop the gloves. Anymore. That's, that's gone. That part of the game is pretty much gone. Um, now too, there's a lot more um, outlawing of obstruction. So you can't, what they used to call clutch and grab. It okay. used to be in Gordy's time and going up through the eighties and even into the nineties a little bit. Um, it was basically legal to have uh, professional wrestling on ice. You could, you know, hold people up with your stick. You could maul them just so long as you didn't hurt anybody. You know, it was, it was pretty much let go. Um, now, if you get your stick into a player's gloves, just tap them. They're calling it because they don't want the superstars of the game slowed down, which again, opens up a lot. It creates a lot of space for the more talented players in the league. And, and that's a good thing too. Stick work is gone. You know, you don't see the, um, the egregious high sticks anymore. Okay. Um, you know, I can remember being young, you know, when I was younger watching some games on TV where, you know, they were headhunting, you know, <laughs> and, and yeah, it was frowned on, but then there was also that, well, yeah, it's a part of the game though. You know, that that's gone, you know, and, really? and, and you know what? And I think it's good. It, it's good in the regard that it was the players that have finally said, you know, enough's enough. I mean, you know, we, what's the point in going out trying to hurt somebody? Right. There isn't right. So that a lot of that is gone. Um, of course, the game's a lot quicker. Uh, that just comes with the evolution of the athlete, right? Yeah. So yeah. When, when you have all the specialized training now, when you have, like I said, you know, special or specialized dieting year round, uh, working out 364 days a year, maybe take one day off. That's it. You know, 
Um, but other than that, I mean, the game is still the same in the regards. You still got to put the puck in the net and you got to keep it out of yours. And so that part will never change, of course. But And there is still physicality in the game. There's still a lot of it. But, I mean, for the most part, it's a quicker game. A uh, little bit less, you know, as far a lot less, actually, as far as the, the dirty play. And uh, that's always a good thing. So, Scott, before I let you go in this segment right here, what I would like to do is uh, ask you, so what do you have going on on your show? Talk about your show because it's a, it's a very interesting show. I checked out a couple of your episodes, <laughs> and uh, it, it sounds like you guys have a lot of fun. You know, oh. and, and I like to and I like to go on record as saying that I would love to be a part of your show at least one time since to say that I've done it because you know, and, and like I said earlier, I've learned a lot from you and or just in this few minutes and. I would like to be a part of that because it sounds like you guys have a lot of fun. Tell, tell us about your show. Absolutely. And you're, you're welcome to clown anytime you want, my friend. There's no doubt about that. So it's called Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast. Uh, it's right here on the Sports History Network. Uh, it's myself, uh, Ed Stefanik, and Dave the Save Warner, who is also our producer, but he's also part of the show. And uh, we have a fantastic time talking about di- different uh, topics, uh, hockey history-wise. Uh, right now, we're going through a, a series, what we call the best of the best, okay. which is where we take teams, franchises, whatever, and break them down, uh, best players of all time by position in that franchise, but we do it in like an all-star team format, right? So we have our first team all-star, like the one we just did was the, matter of fact, we just talked about them, Colorado Avalanche, Quebec Nordiques. Okay. So we came up with our first team all-time, Quebec Nordiques, and that's including coaches, second team all-time, and then the honorable mentions. With a lot of these, the first team is usually, you know, gimmies. But where we have a lot of fun with it is on the second team and the, the, the honorable mentions. Uh, but we, yeah, we're available on, on uh, Facebook, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and all that. Um, but, yeah, we, we have so much fun. We, we really do. And uh, just as a quick side note, because, again, here I go, tangent time, right? Um, <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that, man. You got the floor. <laughs> We were just talking or, about or in your case, you got the ice. Yeah, yeah, right. We were just talking about the enforcers. Well, that stick that, that show is named after Marty McSorley and the uh, the infamous illegal stick incident. Now now tell me about that. I remember hearing something about Marty McSorley, the illegal stick. Tell us about that before okay. you go. Tell us about that. What, what's so up? I'm gonna preface this by saying I am a huge LA Kings fan. Okay. Okay. And the reason being is because I idolized Wayne Gretzky when I was growing up. So throughout the 80s, I was an Oilers fan. And then they traded him in 1988 to the LA Kings. Mm-hmm. And my loyalties went with Wayne, right? I'm like, listen, Edmonton, if, you, if you're if you going to trade Wayne Gretzky, well, you don't have me anymore either. So you tell me which is the bigger loss, right? Yeah. Some okay. punk 13-year-old kid not going to like their team anymore. I'll ask you <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, uh, Gretzky goes to LA in 88. Uh, in 1993, they had a Cinderella run to the Stanley Cup final. They were they a good beat, team. They but beat my Toronto Maple Leafs in the in the playoffs that year, if I remember. That was correctly. an amazing series, too. An amazing series. Um, and I, you know what, Toronto should have should have won that series because I mean they were just, you know on paper they were the better team, but hey, that's why you play the games, right? Right. So we get into the Stanley Cup final, and the the Kings are playing the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah. The Kings win Game One handily in the uh, the revered Montreal Forum. In Montreal Forum, right? And they were up in game two, going into the, late into the third period. And what was it about? Uh, I think it was three minutes left. 
whistle blows. They stop play. Referee Terry Frazier comes over and grabs Marty's stick. I need to see your stick. Hmm. Okay. Looks well. You your curve can only be so sharp in hockey. I forgot what the degree is. Well, anyways, Marty's was quite over the limit. <laughs> right. So when that happens, you are assessed. You're you're penalized for two minutes. It's more or less okay. like a delay of game, right? So sure enough, Montreal scores on the ensuing power play, ties the game. They win it in overtime. Series is now tied one to one instead of LA going back home up two games, oh, to, two nine. games to none. Montreal wins the next three games. Series is history. Dang. So we just mentioned Murray's illegal stick to show. I had Pete Demers on, who was the LA Kings head trainer at that time. Okay. And uh, let's put it this way because I asked him, of course, I had to ask him about it. Yeah, right? of course. Why not? You know? <laughs> so let's just put it this way. Montreal knew whose sticks were illegal and whose weren't because their the stick rack was left out in the hallway. Uh huh. Okay, where all their sticks were. Sure enough, then they had some, somebody was out, you know, doing the measurements and all that, and they basically they just kind of waited until they needed that little bit of info. <laughs> See, that's what that's what the great teams do. Exactly. Hey, that's you what know the what? great team. That's I why can't. they're great. They Dana, do I can't stuff be like mad this. at that. I cannot be mad at that. And you want to know why? Because if it was the shoes on the other foot, you I'd have done, done the same, the same thing. thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course I would have. So who am I kidding, right? That's what the great teams do. That's what they do. I mean, that's why, you know, people get mad at Bill Belichick about things, but it's like, hey, wouldn't you do it if you were in his, his boat? Oh, eh, whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, and I'm a Rams fan, and the Patriots have broken my heart twice. So oh believe me, God. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, who, are you, who are you talking? I'm a Chargers fan. So tell me about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about it. But, Scott, man, I'm glad that you were on board. I'm glad you came on, man. And, um, again, once I have some more hockey stuff, man, you're definitely going to be the first on my list to come in and talk about it, man. So, really and truly, man, thank you for coming on tonight. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. We got to do this again. Of course. We got to, man. And, fellas, once again, Scott, Kenville, check him out on the Sports History Network, his his podcast, Marty's Illegal Stick Hockey Podcast. Check it out, man, whenever you get a chance. It's a great, it's a lot of fun. Scott, once again, thank you, and we'll be right back right after this short break. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. 
It's found right here on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Alexander Nakarada from filmmusic.io. Hello once again and welcome back to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we focus on the best of sports from back in the day. Just to remind everyone out there, you can follow us on Twitter at HistoricallySP2 to get your daily dose of sports history. And in addition to that, you could also drop us a line or two at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And right now it's time for the Home Field Apparel Top 5. Home Field Apparel is the sponsor of our weekly Top 5 where we count down the five biggest historic moments in the world of sports history that are celebrating anniversaries and is being brought to you by Home Field Apparel. Now, college, the college football season is in full swing, and the best way to show off your school spirit when you attend your team's games is to wear a shirt or hoodie from Home Field Apparel. They have a wide range of styles for your favorite team with what I call old school logos to not only make you stand out in the crowd, but also show that you are a true fan. They have shirts that represent close to 200 schools and adding more schools and more styles every day. On the website, you can hit the rewards button located at the bottom of the screen to get 20% off your next purchase if you refer a friend to a site. So give Home Field Apparel a try for your next tailgate. That's Home Field Apparel, where they study your school's history, traditions, and legacies to create thoughtful premium apparel, a must-have for your next tailgate. So once again, Home Field Apparel, where they are fond of saying, wear one for the team. And now, on to our countdown. And this week's countdown deals with the historical moments that celebrated anniversaries this week, which includes Babe Ruth's called shot, as well as one of the greatest boxing matches of all time, and a baseball legend gets his 3,000th hit, and little did anyone know, his final hit. So without further delay, here's the top five events in sports history that took place between the dates of September the 27th through October the 1st. Number 5. Babe Ruth calls his shot against the Cubs in the World Series. On October 1, 1932, the New York Yankees were taking on the Chicago Cubs in Game 3 of the World Series at Wrigley. With the score tied 4-4 in the 5th, and the Cubs players talking smack to Babe Ruth after he misplayed a single in the outfield in the previous inning, he wanted to get back at the Chicago players and fans that were jeering him while at bat. Then came the most disputed moment in baseball history. According to some, Ruth pointed to center field and said, it only takes one. While others suggested he pointed to the Cubs dugout along the third baseline. Either way, on the very next Charlie Ruth pitch, Ruth slammed a 490 foot home run, which landed according to legend about the same place where he allegedly pointed to center field. It was the deepest home run ever hit at Wrigley Field up to that point. But the question still remains, did Ruth call his shot? We may never know the answer, but it goes down as one of the best stories and most controversial legends in the history of the national pastime. Number 4. Willie Mays makes the over-the-shoulder catch in the 1954 World Series. It was one of the iconic images of baseball in the 1950s. It was Game 1 of the 1954 World Series between the Cleveland Indians and the New York Giants at the famed Polo Grounds. On September 29, 1954, with score tied 2-2 in the bottom of the 8th, Indians batter Vic Wurst was at the plate. Giants reliever Don Little was on the mound, and Willie Mays was patrolling center field. 
With runners on first and second, Wirtz connected on a deep fly ball to the deepest part of the Polo Grounds massive center field. Mays, who was playing shallow, sprinted to the ball and made the iconic catch on the warning track and immediately spun around to throw the ball to, throw the ball to second. Both runners who ran on contact, realizing that the ball was actually caught, had to scramble back to first and second respectfully. The Giants eventually won the game in extra innings 5-2 and later on beating the Indians in the series. But that, but that series will always be remembered for Willie Mays and his play known as the catch in baseball lore. Number 3. Canadian sprinter Ben Johnson disqualified from the Olympics. It was one of the most anticipated 100-meter showdowns in Olympic history. On September 27, 1988 in Seoul, South Korea, Canadian sprinter Ben Johnson, an American sprinter and defending Olympic champion Carl Lewis was in the final heat for the 100 meters. This showdown was not only for the gold medal, but it was also for the title of world's fastest man. On this sunny afternoon in Korea, Ben Johnson blazed the field running a world record time of 9.79, finishing first and winning the gold medal for Canada. His time actually broke his own record of 9.83, which he set in the 1987 World Championships in Rome. However, two days later, the race, which was one of the most anticipated in history of Olympic track, became one of the most controversial. It was discovered that Johnson had tested positive for Stanozolol, a form of anabolic steroid. He subsequently was stripped of his gold medal and was awarded it to Lewis, who finished second with a time of 9.92. Johnson, who admitted to steroid use dating back to 1981, was stripped of his 1987 World Championship medal and the IAAF rescinded his world record time at the 87 World Championships in Rome. It would take 11 years for anyone to run a clean 9.79 when Maurice Green of the United States and the World Championships in Athens did it in 1999. Number 2. Roberto Clemente gets his 3,000th and final hit. On September 30th, 1972, Pittsburgh Pirates outfielder Roberto Clemente reached a milestone in his long career in the Steel City. Facing Mets pitcher John Matlack, he laced, he laced a double in the center field of Three River Stadium marked number 3,000. Though no one knew it then, it would be Clemente's final hit of his career. In December of that year, Nick in Nicaragua was devastated by a catastrophic earthquake. And taken off from his native Puerto Rico, Clemente led a relief effort to the stricken country and was on board a cargo plane when it crashed into the Atlantic Ocean shortly after takeoff. His body was never recovered. And that and the number one event that took place between the dates of September 25th and October 5th first in sports history was Muhammad Ali faces Joe Frazier for the third time in the fight known as the Thriller in Manila. It was one of the best known rivalries in the history of boxing. It was the third meeting between Ali and Frazier and each fighter had beaten the other one once and this was going to be the battle that decided the best of the two. The fight was scheduled to go 15 rounds on October the 1st 1979 in Philippine Coliseum in Quezon City. The name Thriller in Manila came from Ali when he boasted in the days leading up to the fight when he said it would be a killer and a thriller and a chiller when I get that gorilla in Manila. 
The bout was regarded as one of the best and one of the most brutal fights in boxing history. In the opening rounds of the fight, Ali was outscoring Frazier with his famous rope-a-dope strategy. However, in the middle rounds, Frazier began to come through and his rhythm and bobbing and weaving improved and started delivering body punches that affected Ali. Both boxers rarely trudged into the later rounds with Ali struggling to breathe and Frazier unable to see. The main turning point of the fight came in the 13th when Ali connected with the right that sent Frazier's mouthpiece sailing out of his mouth. However, Frazier didn't get knocked down and both fighters continued through the 13th and on into the 14th. Yet in the beginning of the 15th round, Frazier's cornerman Eddie Futch decided to stop the fight because of the punishment that Frazier was taking in those late rounds. It was later discovered that Ali was close to quitting himself because of exhaustion due to the heat and humidity of Manila. Ali claimed that this was the closest he had ever been to dying. It is considered one of the greatest fights in history as actually ESPN ranked it as the fifth greatest sporting event of the 20th century. And that does it for the Home Field Apparel's top five sporting events from this past week in history. And coming up next, my man Scott Kinville will return to reminisce about one of the most famous hockey arenas in North America that opened 50 years ago this week. Stay tuned. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, and you are listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And right now we are heading headlong into the shout-out segment. And this week's shout-out we're going to send out to a venerable old building on Long Island. 50 years ago this past week, the Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum opened on Long Island in Uniondale, New York, which, of course, was the home, longtime home, of the New York Islanders hockey team, as well as the ABA's New York Nets. And incidentally, Nassau Coliseum was the site of the very last ABA finals between the Nets and the Nuggets that went seven games, which was one of the greatest NBA, one of the greatest basketball championship finals that not too many people remember. But it was also the site of one of the greatest hockey dynasties of all time. In fact, the Islanders in the early 80s were so good, at, especially at home, that they used to call Nassau Coliseum, which is the coolest nickname ever, Fort Never Lose. So to talk about that, I'm welcoming back my newfound friend, Scott Kinville, to talk about Fort Never Lose. Of course, we talked about Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum. Scott, what do you know about that place, man? Oh, man, that, you know what? So much history made there. Uh, but before I go into my spiel about Fort Never Lose, I just want to make a little bit of a correction from what I said earlier about with Gordy. The doctors would not let him play. Okay. He begged and begged and begged, but he was able to be present for this for them. Okay. In the locker room and all that. So I just want to make that correction. So after his brain hemorrhage and all that. So anyways, let's talk about Nassau Coliseum. 
Uh, the Islanders actually came into the NHL because of the WHA, what we were talking about earlier. Right. The World Hockey Association wanted badly to have a franchise in that brand new building. And the NHL, in their efforts to block the WHA, said, uh, no, you know what? I think we need, we, we need another franchise in New York. So that's actually how the Islanders were born. So is, yeah, that, that's interesting because during that time in the late '60s, early '70s, you know, you had the success of the New York Jets, you had the success of the New York Mets, and and at that time, you just had the Rangers. And I was more than I was more I'm more than sure that the NHL was looking at okay, having a second team in New York may not be that bad, may not be that bad of an idea. You know, of course, the ABA was the ABA and, and the NBA was not looking to put another team in New York to go up with the Knicks because the Knicks were just so big in the early 70s with winning right. championships. So that would make perfect sense to put another team in New York, another hockey team in Metro New York, especially with a brand new building on sure. Long Island. Well, because that's what they ultimately wanted, right? They wanted an NHL franchise. But there was no real appetite to put one there until the WHA comes along. And now all of a sudden, oh, now it's competition. Right. And so that team actually wound up playing in New Jersey. So interestingly enough. Uh, but that first, those first few years for the Islanders, man, were tough. They were really tough. Uh, a losing franchise off the, or off the hop, as were most teams back, and most expansion franchises, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, in modern days, we think of the Vegas Golden Knights and the success they had. And like, oh, that must be what it was like all the time, right? Well, no, far from it. Oh, no. I mean, that's an anomaly. The, the, the yes. Golden Knights are an anomaly, you know, because, I mean, your first season in the league and you go to the finals, the Stanley Cup finals, that's unheard of. You know, right. the only other team that ever came close to anything like that was the Milwaukee Bucks. And it took them three years. To go yeah. to the to win the NBA championship in '71, but of course, when you have Oscar Robertson and Kareem on the same team, then your chances are pretty yeah. good. How do you lose? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, I mean, right off right off the bat, like like I said, they were a losing franchise, and you know the the Rangers were like the um, the rich metropolitan downtown Broadway Rangers kind of thumbed their nose at the Islanders, right? The Islanders were kind of like the, uh, the poor cousin out in the sticks. We don't, you know, they're, right. we're just going to beat them every single time. Well, slowly but surely, once again, all that losing led to all these high draft picks, right? So now all of a sudden, you're bringing in the Denny Potmans of the world. You're bringing in the Mike Bossies. You're bringing in the Brian Trotches. You're bringing in the Clark Gillies of the world. Bobby Nystrom. All these guys started gelling together under Al Arbor, who was one of the, in my opinion, one of the best coaches in NHL history. Uh, wasn't a guy that was going to get all animated on the bench, start screaming and hollering, but boy, the man knew how to put together a game plan. And kudos to Bill Torrey for putting that team together because he was the general manager at the time. They called him the architect after a while. He was, he was the architect, right? And back then, a lot of like expansion teams had this habit of trading away their, their high-round draft picks because they wanted to get established players. So the teams like Montreal would fleece these teams constantly. Because they're like, well, well, here, we got this guy that's sort of on the end of his career, but he's going to bring some star power to you. Give us your first-round pick. That's how they end up getting Gila Fleur, right? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, anyways, Montreal tried to do the same thing with, with uh, Bill Torrey, right? They wanted Denny Potman in the worst way. Mm. He would not He would not budge. I, no, he's my guy. I'm taking him. That's it. Kudos to him because look at all this talent he put together that wound up winning four straight Stanley Cups. 
Dana, they won 19 straight playoff series. 19 straight. That's, That's unbelievable. Amazing. It's it, unbelievable. I mean, you put that, you put that in, in. Can you imagine somebody like the Golden State Warriors or, you know, or, or any team that play in a seven game series to win that many consecutive series? That's yes. almost like UCLA in basketball. UCLA's, you know, one of the greatest streaks ever is. UCLA's basketball during their dynasty in the 60s and 70s won 38 consecutive games in the tournament. Right. Exactly. It's, it's is, like it's, it's on that level. Right. You know, it's, it's, on, almost, it's almost like somebody's just making it up, right? You know, it, it really couldn't happen, could it? Well, yeah, it did. And, um, and I say 19 because they won, obviously, the four straight Stanley Cups, which was four series per year. But mm-hmm. they also made it to the Stanley Cup final in '84. In '84, when he, and he lost, he, he the lost to Edmonton to your boy. Right, <laughs> right, exactly, right. But Gretzky was the one who credited the Islanders with them winning the Stan- with the Oilers winning the Stanley Cup, because in '83, the last year that the Islanders won the Cup, they played the Oilers. Okay. In that series, okay, and the Oilers were the the high flying, you know, brand new young thing. This kind of deal, right there. They were supposed to beat the Islanders. Well, the Islanders, venerable veterans that they were, pretty much mopped the floor with the with the Oilers. Wow! Right? And the game at the they won the Stanley Cup at the Old Coliseum. You had to walk by if you're a visiting team. You had to walk by the home locker room to get to yours. Oh, and Gretzky himself said it. He goes, "Oh man, we dreaded that walk because they're going to be in there celebrating with the Stanley Cup, hooting and hollering and partying." They walked by the Islanders' lock, dressing room. And they kind of looked in. Not a one of them was really, you know, carrying on and celebrating. They all had ice packs all over their bodies, just laying there dead exhausted. And Gretzky himself said it was at that moment that we knew what it took to win a Stanley Cup. He goes, those guys were dead. They had left everything on the ice. They wouldn't even have enough energy to celebrate. He goes, and that's when we knew. That's when we knew we had to take it to the next level. It wasn't just about the high-flying offense and all that. It was about laying your body on the line every single shift, doing whatever it took to win the Cup. And then the following year in 84, they did finally dethrone the Islanders. But it was because of what they saw in the Islanders' victory, or lack of what they saw, right. that led to that first Cup for the Oilers. So kind of an interesting uh, turnaround there. You know, you talk, you talk about how, how Nassau Coliseum was built with a with – a, with a... You have to walk past the visiting the the visitors have to pack walk past the home locker room to get to theirs. What are some other characteristics about that place that you mostly <laughs> mostly remember from there? So I've actually been to Nassau Coliseum. Um, I know I didn't go there for a hockey game. Interestingly enough, I went down there for a Bruce Springsteen concert. Okay, which was which was Not pretty bad. cool. Not it bad. was really cool, and it was towards the end, right before it was uh, renovated to what it is now, and. Um, any Islanders fan will tell you that, especially into the you know the last few years of the Coliseum, it was a dump, but it was our dump, <laughs> right? So <laughs> I remember at that concert, the, the ceilings were leaking. There was leaks in this. I'm like, wow, this is. But it was still cool because you walk out, you know, you, you get to your seats, and even though I'm looking at a stage in my head, because you can still see the boards, right? Because they leave the boards in. Right. I'm like, wow all the history that's taken place in the here. I mean, this is just incredible. Right. So, and it, it is weird because you drive down the road and also that's all you see is this big circular building and all these parking lots around it. That's it. That's all that's there. Right. 
Now, wasn't it built like on? I think it was built like on an Air Force base or old Army. Yeah, base? it was. I think it was an old Air Force base. So it it is. It's a wide open space, wide open. Um, it's kind of funny. And again, I'm not trying to dump on anybody or anything, but there's not a lot going on around the Nassau Coliseum. So that is the main attraction. Trust me, because <laughs> I went to, went to the concert with my buddy, and we were, you know, afterwards like, oh, let's go to a bar, you know, because we had a hotel, we didn't care. We're like, um, there is none. Where is there? <laughs> <laughs> but no, but I mean, really, if if you and I remember watching on, you know, games from there on TV, and it always seemed like the ice was more blue than any other place. You ever notice it had a hue to it, right? Yeah, I mean, so, looking at, like, old footage from, like, the 70s and 80s of the NHL, you would notice that there was some, like, patches of blue in it from place to place, you know? Yeah. Every, every now and then you see a little patch of blue here and there. Yeah. But remembering, you know, the Islanders from the early 80s and seeing their clips, it's like almost the entire ice was blue. Right. Like, you know, it's like, it's like, I don't know what it was, it was like, Playing on a on a map of the ocean or something, you know. It was like NHL '94, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, <laughs> but they were the Islanders. Truly, were Long Island's team because um, at that time they were the only re- the only professional sports team on Long Island. The Mets were sort of close and flushing, mm-hmm. right? So they were in Queens, but it wasn't Long Island. No, the Islanders belonged to Long Island, and they were in that na- they were in the neighborhoods of Long Island, right? So. You know, again, juxtaposed to like the Rangers who are Manhattan, high, you know, big city, this and that. The Islanders are small town. So the Islanders are more players. blue collar, more gritty, exactly. small town, old school Canadian small town hockey. But it was an upstate uh, where Long Island, which, right. is more, which when you think of Long Island of New York, you know, you think of, you know, lunch pail kind of guy right go to the corner bar on Saturday nights and just hang out and, you know, have the hardcore you know, blue collar job uh, around town. And that seemed like what the Islanders were in the eighties. And you, and you illustrate about how they looked after the 80, uh, what was the 83 finals against Edmonton when they would just look so banged up because they put their yes. heart and soul into it. And you, with those guys that you talk about, you know, they, from what I remember reading about them and watching, you know, clips of them, they put their, heart and soul and their bodies on the line every single game and then with in their success that they've had speaks to that oh yeah absolutely absolutely no doubt about it and you know it was it was kind of sad after you know the dynasty was over it, it took a little while i mean they were still competitive for a few years after that right but then you know like the, the, the dark times hit and then the the you know the gordon's fisherman jerseys hit Oh God, those are some, those, those were hideous. You know, that's a typical '90s rebranded. That those, I remember those. I'm like, uh, uh-uh, uh, no, why? Yeah, what are you doing? The, 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 the new, the, the classic New York Islander with the NY and the Y is the hockey stick and the, yeah. the map of Long Island on it. That's that's another iconic jersey. You know, yeah, that other jersey is just iconic. Then they want to go with the, with somebody literally selling fish sticks. You know, that's just yeah. crazy. <laughs> if you want to do that for like a one-off jersey one night, then fine. It's like a goof maybe, but right. Look, don't you do know. that to us. Come on. Mm-hmm. You know? As, as then, your as your main logo? Nah, dude, that's not yeah. that no. <laughs> it ain't going to work. Sorry. It's not going to happen. But no, I mean, that that – you know what? I'm actually I, listen. The UBS Arena is beautiful. I mean, you can just tell, and everybody loves it. But man, I, I 
not only with the Nassau Coliseum, but like a lot of those old arenas, I miss them so much because you know what? Yeah. These modern, these modern arenas are beautiful. You can get anything you want. I mean, if you want to get a steak and lobster, some of these arenas, you can, right. Right. But they don't have the charm of the old arenas. All right. So that, what, it doesn't have the charm well, of the character. Of exactly. The old exactly. Of like the old Boston gardens or the Maple Leaf gardens. You know, right. even the Montreal Forum, all, all, the, the Joe Louis Arena is gone. In Detroit, in Detroit, right. You know, they all seem to have their own special characteristics. And the same thing with Nassau Coliseum. You knew as soon as you turned on the TV. Yeah, that's Nassau Coliseum. Right. right? Whereas now you turn on TV, you have to actually look for a second. You have to actually look at the ice and see where you are. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just, it, it's like, ah, man. So, you know, again, I understand things change and, and obviously economics drives a lot of it, right? When you of can course. have, you know, all these luxury suites and this is that, and that's fine. It's great. I understand they got to pay the bills. I get it. But it's just me uh, lamenting for the old days, I guess. Uh, <laughs> whereas, like I said, those, those, those old arenas like the Nassau Coliseum, man, they're, they're just they're one one of a kind. They'll never you'll never see anything like that again. Well, Scott, man, I really appreciate you coming, driving me down this, driving me down memory lane with this, um, with this shout out about Nassau Coliseum. That once again, tell us about your hockey your hockey podcast. When's next one coming out? What's it going to be about? All right, so Marty's Illegal Stick, a hockey history podcast. Uh, we we record once a week. Uh, we had to actually just take a couple weeks off because we had some. Uh, combating illnesses that we had going on here but we're over that now we're fine we're back good all right and, uh, absolutely so we're recording again this week new episode should be out by thursday uh, or i'm sorry friday and this week we are doing speaking of gordy we're doing best of the best detroit red wings oh that should be very interesting it should so, be pretty long because it's very going to be discussions about that one <laughs> it's going to be you got almost 100 years worth of hockey history to sift through so we got so Ed and I are going that to be That might be a dream forth. team right there with, you know, with, with the Red Wings. That might be a dream team right there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to have a hard time picking who, who the best centers are, you know, between Stevie Y and Sergey Fedorov. And, you know, it's, it's going to be tough. You know, <laughs> Herbal Ted Lindsay. Yeah. But you yeah. know what? We'll, we'll put our heads down. We'll get through it. All right. Well, Scott, once again, thank you for coming in. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And we're coming back right back at you with another episode coming soon. And until then, be cool and turn up the volume. All right, brother. All right. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians 
You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.